This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we'll talk about climate change and you, your brain, your emotions, your family, and your neighbors. We're going to talk about a global issue in a personal way. Evidence that humans are frying the sky and driving wild weather has mounted in recent years, yet most people and countries are going about business as usual. A child swimming in a lake was waving for help. Bystanders would be diving in the water. Scientists are pleading for help, but most people are strolling on the boardwalk, licking an ice cream cone with sprinkles on top. (laughs) Sure, Americans are eating less meat, driving cleaner cars, and putting solar on their rooftops, but society's response is not at the scale or the speed required to protect the climate that supports the economy. Over the next hour, we'll discuss climate denial and the psychology and sociology of building a clean energy future. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three social scientists who come at the carbon challenge from a different perspective. Per Espen Stoknes is an economist and psychologist and author of What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. George Lakoff is professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley and author of many books, including Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And Kari Norgott is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. She's the author of Living in Denial, Climate Change, Emotions, and Everyday Life. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, all of you. Uh, I'd like to begin by asking you about your sort of your moment of climate awakening or, or epiphany. And Paris Ben-Stokeness, you begin your book talking about a particular moment when you committed uh, your professional life to more climate action. Tell us about that. Well, that's a deeply personal thing to dive into, really. Uh, it was just after my um, divorce, and um, I lived with my kids back to um, my ex-wife in her new now apartment, and walking from there alone, and all the dreams and the projects we've had together was kind of broken up. And I had been engaged in environmental and eco-philosophical issues for quite a few years, so it was new. But when I was walking down that um, that uh, hill, um, this was Oslo, kind of chilly, cold, and uh, I could feel the moon hanging over the mount or the buildings there. And um, suddenly, it just dawned upon me that uh, it was time to 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 get serious on this issue and uh, really dedicate myself. To it, so in a way, it, it came from a position of pain. Maybe also recognizing the pain in the world or the deep grief that uh, we can feel when we really tap into the destructions that are ongoing. So that opened my heart, so to speak, and I co-founded uh, the Center for Climate Strategy at Norwegian Business School together with uh, Jürgen Randers, uh, author of *Limits to Growth*. And since we've been collaborating very closely on this issue. And uh, Kari Norgaard, at a similar moment, you did an experiment with some, some uh, students and saw some very different emotional reactions to environmental work that kind of moved you more deeply in the climate direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't so much an experiment, but I was teaching a class on environmental problems at, at University of Oregon quite a while ago. And I remember I had showed, um, showed a film that was 
I don't remember what the topic was, but it was you know very poignant. And uh, one of my students was in tears, and several students were very upset. And um, and other students were sitting there, you know, as though you know, kind of like the ice cream cone moment. Just nothing's happening. And the student who was really in tears was also very upset that no one else was reacting. These other students in the class were not reacting. And that sort of my attempt to try to explain to her got me thinking about how it is that we receive and process really disturbing information. And mm-hmm. the idea that, in fact, when information is really disturbing, one of our of our reactions can be to shut down. So, I mean, I, I can say things about climate change per se, but that's what got me going in the direction of the of the work I've done, which is about how how we respond to climate change. In George Lakoff, your first awareness of climate change, was it a, a rational moment or an emotional moment? Both. Um, this was around 1972 or 3. Um, I had just come to Berkeley shortly before that, and a group at Berkeley had gone over the uh, uh, work coming out of the satellites uh, showing that uh, there, was, there had been an, a, a, an increase of a degree in the atmosphere all over the Earth. And uh, I had been an MIT student. I remember my course on thermodynamics. And I said, oh, my God, do you know how much heat that is in terms of a, a degree all over the Earth? Think of what that's going to do to the ice packs. Think of what that's going to do to snow melts, to rivers. To, you know, and I just went, ah! And this was in the 70s, and there wasn't the movement. And since then, the, the ensuing decades, there's been a lot of understanding, a mountain of evidence uh, talking about climate change. And yet, Kari Norgard, a lot of people are just going about like, well, it's a long-term problem. Yeah, I'll excelize a little more. The, 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 the response is not it commensurate with the challenge. Why not? Yeah, Why are we doing more with so much evidence? Um, it's, I mean, it's an incredible situation. It's the most uh, serious, um, very complex problem. It's threatening to um, you know, our fossil fuel-based economy. It's threatening to our political systems because we haven't been able to resolve it. It's threatening to our sense of the future, meaning, cultural norms, so many different things. And you think about a threat that significant that's about the future, the idea of secure, ontological security, um, it's it's not just you know what what do we even do how would we respond so it's we really there's the work I've done has been about um, emotions that are disturbing um, the, the idea that um, especially for people in privileged nations uh, like the United States uh, the guilt that comes up in association with thinking about climate change fear about the future a sense of helplessness um, and so these are all things and I can say more about it but my work is been really about the way that emotions shape um, how we how we respond, but not just in a psychological sense, but as a sociologist thinking about emotions in a social context. So the fact that we haven't seen our political leadership be able to take strong stands, although here in California, that's um, somewhat different. Um, that that uh, makes more sense of fear and helplessness. The fact that we um, don't have a look around the room and see a lot of other people who appear to be concerned makes people feel more sense of fear and helplessness. So in a social context, these emotions, not just maybe in a biological way. George Lakoff, why don't facts move people more? Very, very simple thing, that if you have a certain worldview, and conservatives have one worldview and progressives have a very different one, uh, if you have uh, a certain worldview that doesn't allow you to see the facts, you won't see them. And the reason is very simple. Uh, 
in general, when you perceive something, something comes into your eyes, you have about uh, a tenth of a second before it becomes conscious, and it will change in that tenth of a second to fit what you already know or believe. It will change fast, and it changes either, I mean, this is flashes of light will change, things you touch will change, all of those things will change, and ideas will change. So when you have facts that come in that won't fit the way that you understand the world, then uh, you won't, the, you know, the, the way you understand the world is not going to change. The facts will either be ignored, ridiculed, or attacked because they will threaten the way you understand the world or not threaten them. You'll, people will be happy with the way you understand the world and ignore the facts. But the frames that frame the facts are part of your brain. They're physical. All ideas are physical. They're in your brain. When they come in, that part of your brain is not going to change. And so you have lots of people in this country who have conservative worldviews, and you know they just don't see it. It's not like they're denying it. It's not like they, oh, I know that fact, and I'm going to deny it. It's like it's not even a fact. So some people can look at Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, Haiyan, Katrina, et cetera, forest fires, and reach totally different conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paris Ben-Stokeness, I saw a phrase in your book, a climate fundamentalist, right? People who, and I might be one of these, who look everywhere and, and they see the fingerprints of climate change on everything, sometimes when it's not there. Yeah, really, the, the starting point of my book is uh, what I call the psychological climate paradox, which is that um, in spite of uh, having thousands of uh, very proper uh, science articles with facts and five IPCC reports over the last 25 years, people were actually more concerned uh, about global warming in 1989, 25 years ago, than they are today. So how can it be that uh, the more we rationally push the facts, um, the less and a declining concern over at least 25 years. And it's probably the, shall we say, the greatest science communication fiasco the world has uh, ever seen. And uh, a lot of it is due to, to what uh, George is explaining here, the effects of, uh, of worldviews and conce- conceptual filters. But there is more to it as well, as I see it. And that is, um, uh, there are really five type of main defenses that are quite particular to the climate issue. Since the climate issue isn't like, you know, uh, terrorists or gay sex or another enemy that's very clear, the climate issue as such is portrayed as very distant to us. So climate communicators had inadvertently been um, strengthening these defenses by uh, talking about the year 2100 or using um, phrases such as the scenario RCP 8.5, as if that would help to get get it across. Uh, and People are we, terrified in the audience. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> RCP 8.5, right? <laughs> so you know, using also images of, of glaciers melting, Arctic ice, and cyclones, as you mentioned, far off. Uh, it's, so it's distant in time, distant in space, and then distance in social impacts. It's always impacting somebody else that I don't know, or I don't even know anybody that knows them. And we know that empathy is decreasing with increasing social distance. And finally, as you mentioned, leaders haven't done anything. So those responsible are doing very little, and I can't influence them. So it just all this distancing just creates an immense sense of this being beyond my scope of influence. 
then what changes people? You might pray, is it extreme weather that happens in someone's community? Or is it, do they notice that their garden is blooming earlier or later? What, what changes this for people that brings it home, home for them? George Lakoff? Oh, the, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, well, the thing is, there's a real problem with these things because often they're not noticed. In fact, the opposite is noticed incorrectly. There's a distinction between direct causation and systemic causation. The ecology is a system. And very often, uh, you know, things like global warming will create snowstorms because of systemic causation. The problem here is climate scientists. Climate scientists only think in terms of direct causation. If you're, say, if you're asked, you know, did um, uh, you know, global warming cause uh, Hurricane Sandy? They'll say, oh, no, we can't predict any such thing with any, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'll give the wrong answer. And the answer has to do with the fact that, first, in every language of the world, every single language, in their grammar, they have a way to express direct causation. No language has a way to express systemic causation. There are four parts to systemic causation. One, sequences of causes. It gets hotter over the Pacific. You know, you get more moisture, lots more energy. The jet stream brings it over the North Pole, comes down over the East Coast as snow in the winter. Okay, huge snowstorms, and then Washington, the conservatives say, what do you mean global warming? It's snowing more than ever, right? But they're missing that. There's interacting causes. There are feedback loops and probabilistic causes. Those are the four parts of systemic causation. That has to be taught. It could be taught if every time you went on a weather broadcast, they had a list of, here are the four types, here's the ones that are involved here now in this thing, that would be fine, except the guy who owns the weather ch- channel is a climate denier. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not going to get that. And, and this is very important. There is no public discourse around systemic causation, especially among climate scientists. Mm-hmm. Pierre Espin Stokens? And in the absence of that, um, there is these easy type of associations. So there are now numerous studies out there showing that in periods where there's above normal temperatures, the amount of newspaper articles about global warming and climate change goes way up. And when it's below uh, average temperatures, the amount of editorials and newspaper articles go way down. And if you poll people in a period where it's cold weather, then there isn't really any belief in global warming. And if there's been hot weather for some time, then the belief in human-caused global warming is very high. And so in the absence of these more longer-term systemic causation frames that George is talking about, we are left with this, um, shall we say, shortcut thinking, uh, heuristics that Correct. take over for real thinking. Kari Nurigar, you write that we're all in denial, and we, and we think about deniers as people who say, oh, Al Gore made it up, but there's many shades of denial. Some of it's very healthy and helps us get through the day. So tell us about the shades of denial within climate believers. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, actually, my, my work is not at all about the climate uh, skeptic movement or the, you know, the more overt kinds of denials. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but it's actually about how people who believe climate change is happening, how we um, experience it in such a way that it becomes normalized, which I think is as much as, you know, for Democrat democracy to work and, and so forth, we need to have, uh, I think, belief in the facts and, and you know, there's a kind of information to drive policy. And the climate denial movement is interrupting that. I think a much more serious problem is the way that the majority of people who do 
understand that climate change is happening um, aren't taking more action on it, um, are able to create a sense that it's not really real. And so my work is actually ethnography, which is looking at everyday life and how people... um, Just try bringing up climate change in a conversation and see what happens. This is one of the things that I did. There's so many different ways that people will change the subject. (laughs) And and why is that? Um, And it's, you know, people are very, very intelligent, and I think we're very compassionate, actually, and very concerned. Um, Yet it's it's disturbing to think about, and uh, we don't want to burden each other with it. We want to have a nice day. Maybe you're in the middle of trying to do something else. And, um, And so... We have all these ways that we push it to the side and recreate a sense of reality, the reality that we've known for actually for most of many people's lives. Climate change has been part of the reality of of what's happening. Um, But through this, we are actually kind of unable to imagine what is real because we're creating this safety zone. And sure, you can think about this as part of many different kinds of social problems that happen, but certainly for climate change, it's a real serious one. And you seem to be saying that skeptics can be scapegoats. It's easy to blame oil companies or skeptics. That's the problem. I'm not the problem. It's someone else. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely think this is a huge... I mean, as much as, again, I think the climate, you know, the overt climate skeptic movement is is a problem, for sure. I think a much more serious problem is the fact that people who do get it, who do see you know, what's happening and and believe it are not mobilizing to a greater extent. I think that is by far the more serious problem. And one of the ways that uh, the we um, does this and sort of gets through the day is by saying to, you know, oh, the real problem is these other groups, because it's much easier to point the finger at someone else or to say the real problem is China or these kinds of things, rather than to, you know, look at the more complex um, situation that we have in terms of how do we move forward? How do I as an individual, you know, use my position strategically, you know, whatever to, to really create change? Uh, Paris Ben Stokeness, uh, part of this is people have to believe that their individual action matters. And it's easy to say, well, my plane trip doesn't matter. My hamburger doesn't matter. Therefore, I don't matter. So help us with individual action here. Is it significant? Right. Um, we've had a lot of habits and patterns and lifestyles that we inherited from the 20th century. So there's car infrastructure out there, there are planes, there are meat production lines, etc. And all these infrastructure, all these habits have us in their grip, so to speak. We are, it's very hard to, to live uh, in another way uh, being alone on this issue. And therefore, we're, so to speak, forced into a, a state of dissonance On the one hand, we know that our lifestyles are destructive. On the other hand, we have these behaviors that is so hard to change. Um, And as a result of this dissonance, it's easier to disbelieve what we know than actually change our behavior. Uh, And also, we can use this um, way of thinking to say, well, whatever I do doesn't matter anyway to the climate problem. And therefore, I don't have to feel this dissonance, and I can rid myself of it. Or I can use another strategy that you mentioned. It's them. It's not me. Or I could say to myself, well, actually, I've installed a heat pump, and I have an energy-efficient car, I have a Prius, so now my trip to Thailand doesn't really matter as much. <laughs> so, you know, um, we are very creative in coming up with self-justification. And it's not a critique. I mean, it's just, it's just the way we are. But the interesting thing about this is that 
we had a steady supply of not what I would call skepticism, uh, Kari, I have a little thing with you. I think we should refer, re reserve skepticism to the real skeptics. And not, we have a steady supply of denialism. It's well-oiled, well-funded, and very little facts, very little brain power behind it. But still, people want to believe it. And how come? Why, why is it such an easy sell to have that anti-climate message? And I think part of the reason is that it really takes away our responsibility to do something, it reduces our sense of guilt, our dissonance, so we feel better if we think all these things that climate doesn't really matter. Sure. I want to add two more things. And the first is that individual actions will never solve the climate problem. That's not what I'm saying as a psychologist. However, it does have huge social ripple effects. So by really acting on this, and then maybe even getting acknowledgement from others that we are acting, this reinforces the social norms and re reinforces the frames that this does matter. So it does have a social, cultural effect, even if it, individual action will never solve the climate problem itself. George Lakoff? Well, first of all, uh, I think Al Gore did a terrible disservice. Mm. At the end of his uh, movie, he said this is all a matter of individual action mm. rather than political action. Here's Al Gore, who should know better, mm -hmm. but there's a reason why he wasn't president. And you know, the, uh, boom! <laughs> uh, you know, he never said what he really believed in this. But the point is that political action is absolutely crucial, mm. and also that this is a matter of institutional infrastructure. Yep. You have an economic infrastructure that is very powerful. It's not just an, an economic infrastructure that's there for individuals. It's not individuals. Uh, you know, we now have corporate personhood, but corporate. You know, but institutions are institutions. They stay. Mm. They're there. They have interests that aren't human interests. You know, institutions don't have children and grandchildren, and you know, don't have empathy and and so on. And this is a, a major kind of thing. It's institutional problems the infrastructure problem, and the political problem. And the political problem depends upon the, the communication issue. People underestimate the importance of communications. And it's not just Fox News or, you know, uh, media reporters. There are, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of conservatives who've been trained to think and talk that way uh, about all issues about a certain moral worldview. And one consequence is that any fact about global warming will go in one ear and out the other for about 47% of our population. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good for the world. And, and, and it's especially not good because that worldview is not built on empathy and care. And that's the heart of all of this. One of the things that's denied along with global warming is the fact that in American democracy, the way it was built, citizens care about each other, act through their government to provide public resources for everybody. And those public resources have to do with taking care of nature, making sure that nature is not destroyed, that what is given to us and, and all animals and so on that we depend on, the entire you know, web of life that we depend on, is there, and that is crucial in that we work together because we care about each other, we care about that, and that is what this is about. It's not about, quote, government. It's about 
Everything that's private depends upon the public. Mm. And that isn't seen. And if you're conservatives, it wouldn't even make any sense. Kari Norgard? Uh, um, thank you. I just uh, very much appreciate that. And I wanted to tag on it because you also mentioned, George, the, um, the issue of a lack of collective discourse about uh, and the way that metaphors shape this. But one of the things I think is that we have, we have a lack of collective discourse about what we can do. Mm-hmm. And Per Espen also mentioned you know, the limits of individualism. We have so much discourse about um, riding a bike or driving a Prius or these kinds of things, and they do matter, but this is not... This is this is really only a, a fraction of what we really we do need um, political leadership, but we also need discourses about how we can be citizens and enact that caring responsibility towards each other and and the the kinds of things that all of us can do to um, to move our society forward. And to that to that end, I think um, California is very hopeful and unique in the sense that there is there is leadership. Um, in terms of um, you know, percentages of renewables and that kind of thing that's coming right now from the governor. This is Climate One, and we're talking about the climate in our minds and our brains, human brains on carbon pollution. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Kari Norgard, a sociologist from the University of Oregon, George Lakoff from Cal, and Per Espen Stokeness. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. Despite ample evidence that our climate is changing, many people still refuse to act on or even acknowledge the danger. Why is that? Daniel Goleman, author of Ecological Intelligence, blames it on a design flaw in our brains. Uh, the, The brain was designed in evolution as a tool for survival, but that evolutionary pressure occurred in earlier ages, you know, over, you know, hundreds of thousands or maybe million years. And we're now attuned to recognize, you know, the rustle in the bushes as the danger. But actually, the global changes that have come with the advent of the Anthropocene Age create a real dilemma. Uh, And the problem is that we don't perceive nor are we alarmed by these changes. We don't perceive them because they're too macro and too micro. And our neural system for danger and threat is attuned to, you know, uh, honey, we've got to talk, that kind of thing, rather than climate change or global warming. It doesn't really register in the same way as, you know, there's a, there's a tiger around the block or the threats that we're attuned to. So I think that facts alone aren't enough, that we need to find a more powerful way of framing them and of, of speaking to people in a way which will activate the right set of emotions and get us moving. That was Daniel Goleman, author of Ecological Intelligence, speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to go to our lightning round and ask each of you a uh, yes or no question, and we'll see if we can get some professors to answer yes or no questions. Or, um, <laughs> per Espen Stokeness, uh, most climate advocates could use a sh- good shrink, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Uh, but. <laughs> but, no buts. Uh, George Lakoff, deniers of human-caused climate disruption are better messengers than advocates for climate protection. No. Kari Norgard, you feel guilty about your carbon-rich lifestyle. Sure, of course. Uh, per Espen Stokeness, we have economists and a daughter of economists up here. So uh, economists are people who don't have the personality to be accountants. Yes or no? 
No. Okay, stand up for your profession. Uh, George Lakoff, getting on an airplane is an immoral act. No. Kari Norgard, if North Korea was hacking the climate, the U.S. would declare war on global warming. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, that ends our lightning round. Uh, Paris Ben Stokeness, you write in your book about, I think it was an article that Ezra Klein wrote and talked about Sean Hannity. And that gets to sort of group identity. And, and uh, tell us that story about if Sean Hannity suddenly became a climate evangelist, how he would, how he would suffer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our attitudes are both embedded in an internal worldview with other attitudes, so to speak, uh, values, but it's also uh, embedded in social networks. So this dissonance, I would feel, if I do something and know I should do something else, uh, it also arises if my friends severely disagrees with me. So let's let's say if I was um, uh, a young, aspiring professional, I wanted to do a career in Statoil, the Norwegian petroleum company, and I came to the executive board meeting and put out a great plan. We should reduce drilling. We have to stop uh, pumping up the, 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 the rate of, um, of um, exploitation of each reservoir because the air doesn't, can't take it anymore. Would that be a huge career step? <laughs> no. And the same way, Sean Hannity would lose his supporters. People would start calling, if, if he came out and said... Global warming is the greatest threat that humankind is facing. People will start to call in. His supporters, his sponsors will withdraw their support. Um, so there is no immediate benefit to Sean Hannity doing that, but there is an immediate and large social cost, which is felt right away. So in that way, it's very rational to go on promoting the message that both his himself, his identity, but also his social relations and his professional sponsors uh, will continue to support. And Kari Norgard, we hear about a lot of Republicans who privately acknowledge the existence of climate change. They won't say it publicly uh, if these elected officials, because they'll get voted out of office, as Bob Inglis and others have. Uh, so this creates this very troubling situation where they kind of know the facts, but they're afraid to come out of the closet on it. Yeah, I mean, this is very much, you know, what Pariston was talking about as well, is very much the idea in sociology of a social fact. You know, there's no law that tells you that you can't uh, do something, um, but nonetheless, there are social ramifications, social pressures. And so, um, and the, this, these social facts constrain our behavior, our thinking, you know, what we allow ourselves to imagine in so many ways, because we're aware, I mean, we are very social beings and um, it, it matters what happens around us and this is a very real social pressure that happens at the you know at the interpersonal level as well as at a structural level in terms of the you know, kinds of economic costs that could come. George Lakoff, same thing for a liberal in Berkeley who says I think GMOs <laughs> aren't so bad or maybe we need nuclear power to solve climate. It's more than that. Uh, in fact, there are people in Berkeley who say that, unfortunately. Do they have any friends? <laughs> uh, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> and, uh, but there, there are issues here. Um, it, suppose you take the, the question of the drought. It's not a question of water. It's a question of global warming. Hmm. People, don't talk, people tend to separate out issues as if the drought were separate from global warming, uh, as if the lack of fish or the cost of fish if you go and try to buy fish recently, you notice it's a little bit more expensive than they used to be. 
There's a reason for that having to do with global warming. The, uh, you know, the effects of beef on the climate is huge, but people don't think of beef as a cause of global warming. It's not discussed. In general, because you separate out issues as if they were issue by issue and not connected, you're not going to discuss them as global warming issues. People talk about, isn't it wonderful that uh, the price of gas has gone down? Not wonderful for many reasons. However, it is politically, in foreign policy, a very important thing having to do with Russia, ISIS, and all, of, all sorts of issues in foreign policy, which makes it more complex. But nobody talks about the complexification of that because it's not seen as, these are not seen as connected issues. And this is, is crucial. If you think about the drought or about water as an issue in itself, and you say, well, it's good that people should pay more for, for more water, just add more cost on it. That's denying you know, the facts, but it's not just denying because you're not even thinking about it. You're separating things as if they were separate issues. You're not thinking at a higher level. And when you think at a higher level and you look at systemic causation and how they're systemically related, all of the things that you, you, you all the conclusions you reach change. The drought is interesting because we've seen a lot of action recently on the drought, perhaps even more than climate, because Kari Norgard, water is more real and tangible for people than this gas that we can't see, pollution in the sky, things that are global. Water is, by its nature, is very local. We ship water around a fair amount, but it's by nature a very local resource. And I'm interested in your thoughts. You're from Oregon, but the California uh, drought is has people talking and acting more quickly and tangibly in their lives. They're killing their lawns, they're demonizing almonds, all sorts of terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And I mean, I think that that's the thing, though, is that, you know, maybe this has to do with uh, the, you know, the metaphor that's George's area of expertise. But we, you know, we think of that we haven't, we haven't had a discourse about what climate change really is in specific places in our lives and all these things, you know thinking about how real estate prices will be affected by climate change or are already now being affected by climate change, um, thinking about how asthma rates will be affected by climate change. You know, climate change is, it, you know, again, there's many, many, and it's because it's complex, because things there's, there's um, going to be different in different places um, and so forth. It, it's, it's not translatable in one simple way, but certainly the systemic causation is, is real and, so, you know, in in my hometown, the things that climate change will look like are going to be different than in Oslo. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we need to have discourses about what it means in our place, how the things that we are seeing are about climate change. And that, I think, helps to make it real and helps to motivate people um, and to, we need to be talking to each other also so that people understand that there are they are not alone in um, in caring about it and taking stands and so forth. It's important. All of these different ways that we can um, make climate change visible in public um, in public space, letters to the editor, all of these kinds of things matter. Just talking about it in simple conversation helps to make it real, which is 
part of how the dem democratic process needs to work. Because that's interesting. A lot of people uh, say we're, no talk. Talk is just more hot air. Uh, and you're saying that talk matters. A, a host of a talk show, I'm happy to hear this. The um, people <laughs> need, because uh, a lot of people in climate just say action, action, action. And you're saying talk matters because it's how we understand and how we normalize it and say it's okay to talk about it. Absolutely. I think a lot of things happen with talk. I mean, um, you know, this is how people develop a sense of what's real, what's normal, what's happening, what could be done about it. It's, you know, the starting point of, um, you know, of solidarity of some kind, of, of having a political imagination, um, of, of knowing that if you, you know, try to do something that, you know, sharing ideas, all of these kinds of things. And so talk is a big part of, you know, how democracy needs to work, not just the kind of talk in in a public space, but even talking, you know, amongst families and friends and these kinds of things, and then it can go on um, from there. This is Climate One, and we're talking about the psychology of climate change. Paris Benstokens? Yeah, I just want to add on first. Um, I think water in California is extremely important because uh, I, I talked about the distance barrier, how climate is perceived as very distant, and with water, that distance barrier just falls. And then if you amplify this, as you say, while talking with others about it, then you bring it into your social network and your social relations. And therefore, it's no longer about PPM values. It's no longer about sea level rise in inches per decade or what forcings per square meters, like these mm -hmm. figures that we have been hearing so much about. But suddenly, it's, it, I can see it. It affects my lawn. And um, I have to speak with my neighbors about it. So it, it makes it felt very near, very personal, and urgent. I want to talk yeah, about right. one topic that's, yeah. uh, that's outside, the, uh, outside the frame, and that is uh, Paris Van Stonkness. You write in your book that educating women is one of the biggest things that people can do to address climate change, and that right. population is something that is, George Lakoff, a forbidden topic. Environmentalists don't like to talk about climate change. Environmentalists don't like to talk about population. It's a messy political, social issue, and yet it's one of the biggest things people can do is educate women in the world and have fewer children. That's correct. Uh, remember, the very first thing that George Bush did when he came into office was say that no foreign aid could be used for contraception. Mm. Right? Very first thing. You know, we need to build more markets and get cheaper labor all over the world, period. And that was number one. And there was a reason for that. But there are other things not being discussed because even water is tangible. Certain other things that affect that are not. How many talk shows have you heard talking about FERC? You know what FERC is? Can you say this that on radio? What's it, are you, yeah, okay. All right, okay. All right, just making sure. FERC, FERC is uh, a government agency, and PG&E is The now, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, okay. Right. And what, what um, exactly, uh, PG&E is trying to get uh, uh, Congress to say that FERC should be in charge of everything that has to do with water and energy at the state level, taking away the state's ability to control water, among other things, and to control also pollution and things like that, but in anything to do with energy and water. Now, this is a disaster, and people don't know it. The federal not, power grab, is that what yeah, that is? Mm -hmm. that it is it's it's so-called federal, but it's, it has to do with the fact that FERC has been working hand-in-hand -hand with industry for a very long time that they have a, a history of working with industry in such a way that they will take, it, take away 
uh, California's ability to control its own water. Then there's the issue of Jerry Brown, who's a great hero of many, for many things in, in the environment. But then there's the water issue. You know, is the water going to be um, taken away uh, from Northern California and from the Delta and gone directly to Southern California, where people will just have to pay more if they want to use more, and rich people will use more? I mean, this is a serious issue about, what, about these water tunnels. The discussion of water tunnels seems like a separate issue. You know, oh, there's going to be a water tunnel. Let's look at the, you know, nobody knows the details, what it's going to be, where it's going to go, how, how the water is going to flow, what it's going to do to the delta. Nobody's going to talk about that. But it is not a separate issue. It has to do with water in general, and that is connected to FERC, and which is connected to all these other things. That's why systemic causation is such an important thing to know about. That's why they have to be discussed. If you, you, if, if you, have, you have radio programs about this issue or that issue, but this is beyond the individual issues. And a lot of campaigns and campaigns at the ballot box, environmental campaigns, are ban- focused on banning plastic bags, banning water, uh, plastic water bottles, banning the Keystone XL pipeline, banning fracking. Kari mm-hmm. uh, Norgard, are those kinds of things helpful in building uh, social movements, as we saw, saw with... Uh, uh, slavery, suffrage, etc.? Are they just convenient well, tactics? I mean, I think we do, I think both and. I mean, I think we do need to be aware that, you know, none of a, it, climate change is going to happen and, and be um, worked against in particular ways, in particular movements. None of us can work on everything. It's kind of, you know, it's too general. So we, we do need to be putting our attention into certain things. And, um, and there's going to be issues that are distinct, right? But what we do need to understand that these are all interconnected, and certainly the um, the discourse that we have had that that you know the lack of discourse of these interconnections is um, is a big part of why it doesn't feel climate change doesn't feel real. That's what Climate One is about: connecting the dots. Perespinstechnostokness. Yeah, we need these conversations, but we also need them to have them in new ways because uh, for 25 years now we heard about. Um, what terrible catastrophes will come if we continue to act as today, we will burn in hell. Uh, It's very costly to do something with the climate and water, and each of us have to make sacrifices, these kind of frames. And and, and they are terribly um, backfiring or destructive, so to speak. So I want to shift the discourse here a little bit in towards what what we know actually works to get people on board on the climate issue. And that is uh, emerging quite clearly from the literature, that if we reframe and speak of climate as a health issue. Health of people, your family, your children, the community, and also health of the forest or the health of the water system. Mm -hmm. That really makes it felt personal, near, urgent, and here. And just to throw in a few more, um, we need to speak not about uncertainty, but we need to speak about risk management. And I think... Paul Hankson and um, Tom Stair did a great job last year with Risky Business. It just didn't quite come out clearly enough that the shift from um, uncertainty that it might happen to an insurance framing, where we actually, it's quite prudent just to pay something a little bit today, much less than we pay for fire insurance, much, la- much less than we pay for defense. We should pay a little bit of climate insurance, not because we know the bur- world is going to burn down, but because it's simply smart to be prepared. And the uh, third frame, no, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, okay. yeah, go ahead. Is the moral frame. Hmm. We don't do this because of the year 2100. 
We don't do this because of Arctic ice, but we do it because this is a moral issue. And this ethical and religious, shall we say, framing of it is now coming out very strongly with the Pope's engagement in the encyclical. So there's a kind of resurgence now of the moral frame. It's, it, that's what it truly is. So, and the last one is the opportunity frame. It's going to be fun. Thousands of billions of dollars are going to be made and shifted in the the restructuring of the economic system. So health, risk, um, morals, and opportunities. These are the ways to speak about the climate. So please Mm -hmm. join us. We had a person stand up at a Climate One event recently who said... Americans like food, sex, and fun. And get those three things into climate, they'll have good Americans on, <laughs> on, on board. board. I'm on, on board. board. Yeah. George Lakoff? See, you're, you're basically right. I mean, I, for, I've been talking about moral politics for 20 years now. Hmm. And, and it's, that's really the basis of our political life and the basis of who you are. Everybody likes to think of themselves as doing what's right. Hmm. right? And the question is, what is right? that this is a moral issue, is the moral issue of our time. Uh, Barack Obama actually said that last year once, and, <laughs> or maybe twice, but, but morality is right. Health is part of what's moral. You know, if you are unhealthy, you're not free, you could die. It is a major part of what counts as what's right. Being healthy and dealing with health is absolutely crucial. But there's another part of this that has to do with responsibility, which I think you you both talked about. Um, Along with morality comes the issue of responsibility. And right now we have a notion of uh, the conservatives talk about only personal but not social responsibility. There is no social responsibility. Mm -hmm. Then there's social responsibility. But there is no notion of contributory responsibility. Mm. There is no point that... You know, it's not like you are going to change the world by recycling, you know, but it has to, having to do with taking responsibility and, you know, in your conversation, in your connection to other people, in talking and thinking and understanding connections among issues as part of a con- contributory responsibility that you should be doing and, and, and sort of demanding of the people you're with. That, yes, they, they can't change the world by recycling either. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I have a cousin who studied recycling in San Francisco at one point, and he pointed out that uh, commercial recycling was 99% of recycling, and that all the recycling everybody did was 1%. Okay? Yes, it's 1%, and we put out our recycling. And it has a political effect. And it's a political effect. Because it's an, and, and this is an issue that's really important that has to do with, with that does have to do with action. It, the concept is called reflexivity, but terrible term. But let me explain what it is. When you act in a way that other people will understand conceptually, what they do is it changes how they think, and people act based on how they think and understand the world. So there are certain kinds of actions that lead other people into modes of thought, which then lead to other kinds of actions, not necessarily the same ones. But, you know, it's not like that, that ideas are a virus. They're not a virus. They work by reflexivity and action in the world. And Paris Ben Stokeness, you write about what motivates people. It's not virtue. It's not money. It's what their neighbors are doing. It's what they see other people doing. And this gets to identity, which I want to get to very quickly on identity and, and the group motivation. And then we're going to uh, move to the next section. Yeah, very briefly. Um, 
it emerges very clearly from social psychology and marketing psychology. Um, Bob Cialdini did, did some studies that are now famous, put up hundreds of households into four groups. One group were told you should conserve power because um, it's good for the earth, it's sustainable. The second was told you should conserve power because of your grandchildren, your children, and your future generations. <clears throat> The third group are told, well, if you, if you conserve energy, then uh, it cuts your power bill. It's good for your wallet. And the fourth group were not told anything else rather than what they were using compared to their neighbors. And you can guess which of these four groups had the most sustained and statistically significant reduction in power use. It was the fourth group. You're right. So neighbors matter more than grandchildren. <laughs> do, we, do we care about our grandchildren? Well, John Oliver no. said, said we can't be... <laughs> John Oliver said we can't be trusted with the future tense, so I guess he's, he's settled that. Um, we're talking at Climate One about the psychology and the mind of climate change with Per Espen Stokeness, economist and psychologist, George Lakoff from Cal, and Kari Norgard from the University of Oregon. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Okay, my question is, I, found, I find it dumbfounding that there's a high correlation between fundamentalism and climate denial, and I'm just wondering... I don't understand the profound correlation between those two. I have a book on this. I have seven books on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it has to one. George needs. Starting with, starting with moral politics and going down to the political mind. I mean, and the all-new Don't Think of an Elephant, which is now out. The point is, it has to do with um, the fact that you have two worldviews out there. One that has to do with empathy and caring about other people and taking responsibility for both yourself and others. And another worldview that says, no, you know, democracy is only about liberty, about you know, what I do. No one should be able to tell me what I do. I, should be, I have personal responsibility, and everyone else should only have personal responsibility, and I shouldn't have to care about anybody else. If you have that latter worldview, then things are going to go together. Uh, you know, you're not going to care about environmentalism and when it comes down to fundamentalist Christianity, you're going to have a view of God that says you only get into to heaven on the basis of what you do, period. Personal responsibility. And, uh, you know, and you know, God is going to tell you in his commandments what to do. Right? This fits together into one coherent idea, which was described in moral politics back in 96 and, and in all the books since then. It is very important to understand that that idea links many, many things. If you want to know why global warming has to do with taxation, what does it have to do with abortion, what does it have to do with um, you know, all these other issues, uh, with um, you know, uh, protecting Wall Street and so on, with the TPP, you know, with all of those, those issues, they're all connected via the, these, this worldview difference. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. I am pleased that there's so much conversation about the fact that we don't have a language or systemic conversation about systemic causation. And this relates, I think, to the difficulty of individual responsibility. Civilization, our infrastructure, is a system. It is, it is in fact, a big organism, if you will. We didn't all create, none of us created it individually. So my question is twofold. One, what would be a good language for that? How would we get that language going? And secondly, how do we resolve that with the fact that 
individuals can only have so much impact on that. And, and where's the value in feeling whatever grief there is about what our true ability to affect that? So let's two, do two part of that quickly. And we'll, the guy okay. might be part of that. George Lakoff, okay. and then we'll get Kari. All right. First, uh, there's a reason why we don't have that language, because, every la- because children who determine what, what words and can be understood and how language works, they, deter- they don't have experience of systemic causation. That's why direct causation is in every grammar in the world and systemic causation is not. It has to be taught. It has four parts. It's teachable, but nobody out there is teaching it, and uh, especially climate scientists. Scientists have to know this. Kari Norgard. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's a great question. And I, I think about some two of the most central concepts in sociology, actually lis- listening to the way you framed it, and that I think we live in a society where we talk a lot about individuals and we have a lot of discourse about, um, especially in the United States, you know, about uh, the economy and so forth, but we don't have a lot of discourse about how society actually works mm-hmm. and how we relate to it and, um, and how we might change it and the ways that we can and the ways that we can't, sort of the ways that it both constrains us and that we could change it. And so, I mean, I think sociology is... a an underappreciated discipline. I'm biased. That's what I, got my, <laughs> that's what I teach it. But I do think that it's, there's a lot of, of um, wisdom and language and sort of knowledge about how we're shaped, how power works, all these kinds of things that are very much needed in the, the moment that we have that our society is in such crisis. It's time for the fuzzy sciences to come forward and help us. Okay, let's go to our next question. Uh, all the scientists that I've read about and, and talked to say that we have to in a massive way, drop uh, fossil fuels and, and do renewables. I don't see any connection between what's being talked about here and that. Uh, uh, there is action and then there's action. Perez Ben Stokeness. Um, what is needed is to at least half carbon emissions by 2050 and at the same time grow the economy. And the good news is that this is fully possible if all parts of the economy decarbonize at a rate of at least 5% per year. That's the ratio of value generation to emissions. And we are talking about the social premises to build bottom-up support to force that. It's quite easy to solve the climate problem. You slam a price on carbon and redistribute it to the people. We all know that, but why don't we do it? And the reason are the social barriers, and that's what we're discussing. How to remove the social barriers so we can do the quick enough decarbonization of the economy that we know are needed and is technically feasible. We just need to decide and agree to accelerate it. It is happening. It's a political problem, not a technological problem, a lot of people have said here at Climate One. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. George, you spoke about how um, the facts about climate change oftentimes become invisible to people that have this conservative worldview and the various frames that that worldview invokes. So is there a way of communicating this issue that is commensurable with that worldview? That, um, is there a way of talking about it that can actually exist within that framework? If not, what are the words, phrases, or actions that can help create those frames in people where they didn't exist previously? Uh, it's an interesting question, and there's only one study I know that's an experimental study and localized that, that takes it up. Uh, it's a study at Stanford that uh, did an experiment where uh, they had looked at what I wrote about uh, conservatism in moral politics, and they said, okay, suppose you talked about the purity of nature and the purity of the environment. 
would that move people who are conservative? Because conservatives are very much concerned about issues of purity uh, and so on. And what they found was that in the experiment, experimental section, the answer was yes, that it would move them you know, uh, right after the session to say that they would be more in favor of this. We don't know if that would actually work in the world. Okay? But that's, the, that's one kind of issue that, that is possible. Per Espen. Yeah, I think it's fully possible to argue in terms of the energy transition that we're in, in, in frames that are conservatively aligned. For instance, um, that the distributed generation of solar and wind is all about free market competition. So it's all about property rights. It's about economic development, innovation, enterprise, cutting red tape for new energy, reducing unfair subsidies, and finally improving the consumer choice. So rather than having one monopolistic utility, you have the opportunity of free market energy. So there are several ways we can speak about this that would make it more compatible. Let's end with, I'd like to ask each of you, uh, what is your carbon vice... (laughs) <laughs> and what are you doing to reduce your carbon footprint? Per Espen Stokness, your carbon, carbon vice, vice is flying. <laughs> and what I'm Airplane. doing is that I'm purchasing four times my amount of carbon emissions from the European trading scheme. So if you assume that works, then my carbon flying is quadruply carbon negative. Kari Norgard. Uh, mine is also flying, and um, but uh, I'm trying to change the public discourse about it, which I think is very needed. George Lakoff? Uh, Mine is using cloud computing. Mm. Cloud computing is one of the dangers to the environment. It's not discussed. But it's amazing because cloud computing uses huge amounts of water and huge amounts of energy and is growing all the time. And the idea of linking up all of your devices uh, to each other and to the cloud is being pushed all the time by all of the companies. Cloud computing is... An issue. It's not discussed as an issue. We have and a- I use it, and that's my vice. Hmm. And- I, I use Gmail. It's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Just on clean uh, cloud computing, we have a Climate One podcast called Clean Cloud, which has companies in here talking about getting cleaner energy into that. Climate One recently moved from Amazon, which is a very, very dirty cloud hmm. provider, to a clean one based here in San Francisco. We have to end it there. We've been talking about the psychology and our minds on climate change with George Lakoff, professor of linguistics at Berkeley, Kari Norgard, associate professor of sociology from the University of Oregon, and author of Living in Denial, Climate Change, Emotions, and Everyday Life, and Per Espen Stokness, an economist and psychologist, and author of What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you to our audience here in San Francisco and to our people online. Thanks for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.